Chapter 8. The Meeting. The person who texted me also gave me an address. It was a beautiful Victorian in the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood. By the way, for the record, Haight is spelled H-E-I-G-H-T. I had no idea who this person was or why we were gathering. Curiosity and boredom drove me across town, figuratively that is. I was literally driven across town by an Uber driver, a 70-year-old white guy still working well into his golden years to make ends meet in this new gig economy. I stepped out of the car and was promptly greeted by a woman. You're Toledo. I am. I'm Shelley, a.k.a. Project 46. We shook hands. She was normal. By that I mean she didn't have any face tattoos or combat boots or excessive piercings. Just plain, like me. If you haven't guessed it by now, this is not the meeting I attended at the start of my little story. That meeting takes place in Oakland and is still one month away. This meeting is in San Francisco and included a rather different group of individuals, to say the least. It was a beautiful place. The exact type you'd see in shows like Full House and Mrs. Doubtfire. Exquisitely maintained, tastefully manicured. Nice place, I said. Yes, it is. One of our members offered to host today. Members? Is this like a club or something? Or something, Shelley said. Care to see the inside? Sure. It was beautiful. Exactly what you'd expect from a Victorian. Stained glass doorways. Unlike boxy Greek revivals, Victorians have asymmetrical shapes, wings, bays, and deep eaves. As we entered, I waved to a couple of fellas chatting and laughing on the wraparound porch. Inside, the light filtered through beveled windows that tickled my senses. If I had to sum it up, everything I was experiencing, I'd say it felt like home. There was the fireplace with a hand-carved wooden mantle, a chunky, solid oak table with a distressed finish, high ceilings and ornate lighting, and in the corner, a giant swastika. Wait, what? A swastika? I blinked my eyes twice hard. It didn't go away. I needed a reboot button or something. If I could just turn myself off and on again, maybe the arrow would fix itself. I tried to play cool because, well, I didn't want to die. It was a setup. And whatever poker face I was wearing didn't fool Shelley. What is it, Toledo? Oh, it's the Tiffany lamp, isn't it? I agree. It really does clash with the overall theme in here. Slowly, very slowly, I walked back outside. Good idea, Shelley said, following me. Let's get some air. From a safe distance away, far enough where I felt I could run through traffic or hail a car in an emergency, I confronted Shelley. What the hell is this? Take a breath, Toledo. Calm down. She was unfazed. Are these Nazis? Mm, around these parts, I think they prefer white nationalists. What? You think it's semantical? Yeah, you're probably right. I'm out of here, I said, and had every intention of walking away. But she stopped me. Her voice was so familiar. 
The words she chose were the same words she had written on message boards, the same logic that drew me toward her in the first place. And now, combined with her presence, her sharp wit, and milky confidence, I hesitated. Toledo, wait, she said. I'm just having some fun with you. So you're not a white nationalist? I'm not really one for labels, you know? Any kind of groupthink or organized participation I'm pretty weary of. They could have been my words I'd written myself. Maybe they were. Either way, she had me. Hook, line, and sinker. I took a breath, relaxed a little. I've seen what you've written, Toledo. We're not like these guys. So then what are we doing here? How did we find each other? She said. What search terms did you use? Hate deplorables or how to get back at Trump or who can I vote for in 2020 that would piss them off the most? I laughed. Something like that. Well, I did too. And I think I know a way we can win again. Just then a clean-cut man approached us. We're going to get started soon, he said politely. We'll be in in a moment, thank you, Shelley said with charm. Great, he replied. In the meantime, would you care for some wine and cheese? I'd love some, Shelley said, accepting a glass. Mmm, delicious. Is this a Von Holt? You're good, said the Nazi. I mean, white nationalist. Great choice, she said, more flattery. The man walked inside. These are white nationalists? Well, it's still San Francisco. I mean, what did you expect? Hoods and torches? Way too garish for this crowd. I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. Shelley laughed, perhaps a little too hard. Well, the intolerance around these parts is a little more, shall I say, sophisticated. Recruitment was slumping for a long time, so they rebranded. Traded hoods for polo shirts and loafers. That's cute, Shelley, but I'm not going in there without a pretty damn good reason. Shelley perked up. Ah, so you like a good debate, do you? Now she warmed up her hands by rubbing them together. She cracked her knuckles. She knew I loved a good debate. She'd seen me destroy competing arguments online by eroding my challenger's positions. I was methodical, like a game of Jenga, pulling bricks out one at a time until they toppled. Okay then, start the clock. Give me two minutes, she said. I'll give you three. I said, setting the timer on my Garmin. Starting now. Would you like to see Republican Tears, Toledo? Sure, I said, playing along. Would you like to see change? Lasting change? Yes. I know a way to offer them a lesson that will serve us all a lifetime. A lesson that can only come from them, not from us. I'm listening. Well, Toledo, I'm about to blow your fucking mind. My plan will shut their traps for good and set their asses straight. Best of all, we achieve it. And here is the beautiful part, by just giving them what they want. So when it all falls apart, they can't blame you or me or China or Mexicans. When it's all said and done, they'll have only themselves to blame for their crappy lives and their deeply flawed strategies that got them there. How? I said. How much time do I have left? 30 seconds. It's so easy. And the answer has been right in front of our eyes this entire time, but no one has seen it. Not until now. What is it? 
Toledo. This time next year, November 2020, you and I will have convinced most of San Francisco the best way forward is, the timer on my watch rang, to vote for Trump. Chapter 9, Revolution 101. Another interesting study in the area of human behavior was done by Dr. Solomon Ash, conducted in 1951 at Swarthmore College. The study was designed to evaluate a person's likelihood to conform when pressure is applied. A group of participants were shown pictures of lines of various lengths and were asked the simple question, which line is longest? The trick was, in each group, only one person was a true participant. The others were actors with a script. Most of the actors were instructed to give the wrong answer. Strangely, the one true participant almost always agreed with the majority, even though they knew they were giving the wrong answer. This study is a famous example of the temptation many of us experience to conform to a standard during group situations, and it showed that people often care more about being the same as others than they do about being right. It was alleged that during the famous escalator scene, when Trump announced his run for presidency, that his campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, paid actors to cheer at that event. So I ask you, do you think it really happened? Here's what we know as fact. The Trump campaign paid a contractor who then hired a subcontractor called Extra Mile Casting to provide services at the June 16, 2015 rally where Donald Trump announced he would run for president. Just two days later, The Hollywood Reporter published a story that they had obtained emails showing that a New York-based casting company recruited actors to play cheering supporters at Trump Tower for $50 a head. The email explained that Extra Mile was working with Gotham Government Relations and Communications on an event, quote, in support of Donald Trump to be held June 16, 2015. Quote, we are looking to cast people for the event to wear t-shirts and carry signs and help cheer him in support of his announcement, the email read. The rate for this is $50 cash to be paid at the end of the event. It wasn't a focus of the news that day because on the same day, Trump made incendiary and unfounded claims about Mexicans that stole the headlines. This footnote in history might seem inconsequential given everything we know about his presidency. But a flame needs fuel to grow, then spread. And a revolution needs people, real or fake because no one will stick their necks out in a vacuum. They need to feel others are on board too. Funny to think that Trumpism started in part with a bunch of extras, supers, villains, playing a backup role for a reality TV star while looking to make a quick buck. Chapter 10, Explosive Revelation. 
I stood on the sidewalk in front of a house hosting white nationals. As someone I barely knew tried to convince me the future of our country depended on four more years of Trump. I paused to consider her rationale. It doesn't work telling them what to do, I said, piecing her logic together. They hate us for it, Shelley said. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink, I said. Shelley just watched me. A good salesperson knows to be silent when you're about to close a deal. Let's not be their foil anymore, I said. Let's let them own it, all of it. No more blaming Democrats, no more blaming China or Mexicans. Shelley just listened and watched me connect the dots she laid out perfectly. Another advantage of your strategy is no more liberal tears. We're on your team now. We're together. It takes away their greatest motivation. And what's more, I'm now generous. That's right, Shelley said, impressed by my grasp of her plan. It's the most generous act I can do for them. Me, a San Francisco progressive elitist, giving them my vote. No questions asked. They don't want our universal health care or our free tuition or our Green New Deal. They don't want anything that comes from me. Shelley inserted now, but yet Democrats continue to try and force feed them. Politics has, has become like sport. We have team colors, matching hats, large events. With group chants, Shelley injected, lock her up, lock her up. Lock her up, I said. It was all becoming clear to me now. And what if all of a sudden the competition stopped competing? What if the opening kickoff of a football game was booted by the Dallas Cowboys, but the New York Giants players just stood there? Let them rack up a hundred points and win the Super Bowl year after year uncontested. What would happen? It was a rhetorical question of which I didn't know the answer, but suddenly I wanted to find out. It's crazy, I uttered. Yes, Shelley agreed. And it's genius, I followed. Congratulations. Welcome to the world of voting for Trump, she said. You do realize he'll tear it all down. It could get ugly. Oh, we know. We're counting on it, Shelley said. We have the best statisticians working for us out of Stanford. We know precisely the odds of every conceivable outcome. After all, the guy has had four bankruptcies. We're not blind here, Toledo. And what makes you so sure we won't suffer along with everyone else? If the economy tanks, we'll feel some pain too, but not nearly as much as they will. History shows that cities are more resilient and bounce back much faster. Plus, Governor Jerry Brown has done a pretty good job in creating a rainy day fund. We'll persevere, and we have rich reserves to draw from amongst our donors. I nodded with comprehension. So your plan is basically the cut-off-your-nose-despite-your-face strategy. No, no, not at all, Toledo. Like I said, we'll be fine. Plus, rural areas will have finally learned their party offers empty promises. But there's also a reasonable probability that we could actually prosper in a downturn. 
Our analysts have identified prime investment opportunities in the likelihood of a depression. Analysts, I scoffed, you mean vulture capitalists. Call it what you will, Toledo. These are the rules of the game. We need to start playing by them too. It's time we take a page out of their playbook. Which includes making some pretty strange bedfellows too, I said, motioning to the house full of white nationalists. You're a quick learn, Toledo, she said, flattering me again. So, she said, leaning in for the ultimatum. Time to close the sale. Do you want to start winning again? Or do you want to continue fumbling over your moral superiority and another likely defeat? We looked at each other, expressionless. I'm in. Good, she said, not surprised. Welcome to Project 46. There are others like us, Toledo. Many. I'll introduce you to them soon. Are these guys proud cardholders? <laughs> no, she said. Just some strange bedfellows. As it turns out, I've got something for them. They've got something for me. You can wait outside if you'd like. No, I've, I've come this far. We walked inside. It was rather uneventful. I might go so far as to say disappointing. It reminded me of a time I had friends from Ohio visit me when I first moved to San Francisco. When I asked them what they wanted to see, Golden Gate Bridge, Muir Woods, Sausalito, Alcatraz, they answered the Castro. The Castro, as you may or may not know, is our historic gay neighborhood. I don't know what they expected to see in the Castro, but it wasn't there when they arrived. Just normal people drinking coffee and walking the streets with small dogs. Frustrated, they started asking bartenders, Hey, psst, where will we find the real seedy scene? You know, like chains, whips, leathers, and horse saddles? If it existed, we never found it. Same here. It was just a room full of white guys drinking wine and laughing. Voices hardly raised above impolite, even when politics was the subject. The most controversial topic seemed to be around the recent ban of Fourgois. I even thought a few of the guys looked a little too ethnic to be purely Aryan. Leave it to San Francisco to disrupt even our most storied American hate groups. As for Shelley, I was growing smitten. Smart, beautiful, confident, persuasive. She knew my buttons and pushed them masterfully. I had butterflies. This could be fun. It had the feel of a early stage internet startup. Bold, exciting, great upside potential. And I was an early entrant. Couldn't wait to see what came next. I saw Shelley shake hands with a guy and trade a box of wine for a package. You ready? Yes, I said, giddy with anticipation. I've got to make a few stops first. Two more potential recruits, just like you were one hour ago. Maybe I'll even let you lead the conversation, she said, empowering me with responsibility and trust already. Awesome, I said. It certainly beat staring at a computer screen at home alone. We made our way to her electric car. As I pulled the seatbelt around my waist, I asked, what's in the package? Oh, that, she said, tossing it in the back seat. A bomb. Chapter 11, Target Locked. Fast forward one month. The name tag on my shirt read Data Query. I've just passed security, 
and entered the building that once housed the Black Panther's headquarters. I'm here on a secret mission from Shelley. I am an infiltrator, a spy. I am here for intel purposes only. I do not possess the bomb. I was given specific instructions to case the place. They call themselves antivirus. As to the virus they were anti too, well, you could ask 100 people at this meeting and you'd get 100 different answers. We're anti-lies. We're anti-children in cages. We're anti-climate denial. We're anti-Fox News. We're anti-wealth gap. We're anti-Trump. We're anti-nativism. We're anti-populism. We're anti-electoral college. For all intents and purposes, our groups, Shelley's and theirs, are the same. We both have parallel visions for America's futures that are rather indistinguishable from the other, entirely identical to the naked eye. But make no mistake, we considered them our rivals, if only because of the different methods we were willing to employ to realize our visions. Simply put, they didn't have the stomach to do what we knew was necessary. If you're familiar with the X-Men movies, you'll understand our dynamic. In the movies, there are mutants versus humans. The humans hate the mutants because, well, again, they're so much cooler. But the mutants are divided into two different groups. One group is led by Charles Xavier or Professor X. He used diplomacy and education to befriend the humans. The other band of mutants was led by Magneto. Magneto sees humans as untrusting, frightened, and inferior. His tactics are, well, less civil. And now I was Mystique, a chameleon-like mutant, loyal to Magneto, now entering the X-Mansion, or Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. I entered the main room filled with youngsters. It was packed, alive with anticipation. A woman stood on a makeshift stage. It was the same woman from the security at the front door who was screening people before permitting them entrance. Her presence was different now. She spoke softly, letting the loud participants adapt to her presence, not the other way around. Thank you for coming today, she started humbly. My name is Viv. We're here today because, well, we want to make America great again too, she said to the laughter of the group. We want to restore opportunity, optimism, and civility to our country, and we know we can do it without being complete assholes about it. Cheers again. With just a few words, Viv had won them over. Yes, it goes without saying we have to beat Trump, but we also know this problem is much bigger than him. He did not create this situation, and removing him will not end it either. Consensus spread through the group. But first things first, we need to own up to our own mistakes. We're not going to heal this country by shaming people and calling them uneducated and deplorable. Those days, they, they have to be over. The only way this works is if we leave our little bubble by the bay and actually go and talk to people. Listen to them. Make them know they are heard. In this path, we will rediscover empathy. In this path, we will heal. 
ourselves included. The force of her words shook me. I was still grieving the loss of the election. All of us were. The loss of decency. I had conviction in Shelley and her ideas, but, but now I was feeling conflicted. It's San Francisco, after all. None of us are actually from here, so go home. Go back to your hometowns. Visit the people you've unfriended on Facebook. Talk to them on Long Island, in Spokane, in Wisconsin, and in Ohio. Please, in Ohio, she said to the laughter from the group. Soften your hearts, extend an ear, then a hand, and I promise you, we can make this country start to work for everyone again. Such skill. Viv was dynamic, balancing confidence with vulnerability, compassion with authority, and in ways only a mother can. She paused to give us a moment to reflect. Next year, 2020, we will defeat Trump. Soft cheers arose. We will end the lies, now growing cheers. But most importantly, we'll restore our union, the one we used to hold so dear, the one we fought so hard for. We will heal our country, our neighbors, through compassion, smart ideas, and hard work. Those are the things that made us great and will make us great again. I was proud to stand with these people as the very hair on my arms stood on end. It's not as dire as many of you think. Yes, it was a wake-up call and a necessary one at that. But let's not forget, just eight years ago, this country elected the first black man with the middle name of Hussein, no less, as president. Yes, it's a pivotal time. Our country is facing unprecedented challenges. And the old go-to jobs like manufacturing, retail, trucking, natural resources, they're gone and they're not coming back. It is a pivotal time. So where will we pivot to? To hate, fear, and isolationism? Or can we come up with some new ideas to share the wealth the dignity and the opportunity. She stepped down from the stage. I felt baptized, washed free of despair, replaced with love and a shared sense of belonging. I was ready to change my allegiance and follow her anywhere. The feeling did not last long. No sooner did she step down from the stage when the room began to unravel as the trappings of the Democratic Party surfaced right on cue. Emboldened people shouted from the crowd, Pete Buttigieg, 2020, shouted a small but enthusiastic group. No, the country's not ready, countered another caucus to mixed boos and cheers. Biden, 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 chanted yet another group. Boring, boring, boring rang a chorus, in perfect pitch, I might add. We need to tackle climate change first. Beto, baby. The best way to save the environment is to stop eating animals. Go vegan, shouted a lone woman. Wait, wait, if this group is some kind of front for PETA and vegetarianism, I'm out of here. Yeah, me too, said another, and they did in fact leave. Fragmented. That's the only word to describe the Democratic Party. Not Republicans. Oh no, they epitomize loyalty and solidarity. Trump can say, and has said, the most outlandish things on stage, and his minions know to clap along and not bat an eye. 
Same with the Senate and Congress. Compliancy is their greatest virtue. Democrats, on the other hand, are blessed and cursed with a diverse constituency. Imbued in each of us is a sense of individuality and a right to express our unique life experience. And while we pride ourselves on respecting every voice, embodying the core tenets of a democracy for all, in a political environment, if your platform is to emphasize everything, well, you end up emphasizing nothing. We need a wall, someone shouted, around San Francisco to keep deplorables out. The crowd erupted, mayhem ensued. Californians for secession. My brow wrinkled. I could have sworn that voice sounded familiar. Shelly? Viv took the stage once more to quell the growing dissent. People, people, she said in a low voice. She would not chastise. You bring your passion, and we welcome it. Dante said the darkest places in hell are reserved for those who maintain neutrality in times of moral crisis. Well, it's safe to say that none of you are remaining indifferent. There is urgency on many fronts. I hear you. I see it too. Most of you have worked at startups, so you know that success is not a linear trajectory. And when we falter, and we will falter, we block out negativity, pull together, and go to work, Viv said. The mood of the group improved some, but was still uneasy. Viv seemed to be weighing a decision in her head. Now she was about to go off script. I, um, I wasn't going to share this, but given the sudden disquiet in our presence, maybe this is as good a time as any to share something big, really big. A hush fell across the crowd. We have acquired new information about Trump, Viv said. She looked over at Net Brutality, the computer science wizard. For the record, I'm using the word acquire in loose terms. Nevertheless, we have damaging information about 45 in our possession about his past that could very well ensure he never becomes 46. A communal gasp was followed by the drone of chatter. When will you release it? shouted someone from the back. Timing, as you know, is everything, Viv said. There's very little this man can't shake, and while we are certain this would be the biggest bombshell to ever drop, we also do not underestimate his loyal base and his surrogates in the conservative media. As expected, people grumbled, holding their own opinions superior. So as you leave tonight, you can leave with hope, and now knowledge that we are much closer to our goal than ever before. Thank you, and good night. I stuck around and watched everyone shuffle out. It was a lot to take in. Ohio, sounded a voice. It was Viv. Toledo, actually. She smiled. Thanks for sticking around. I, I hope I wasn't too hard on you. Nah, you're just trying to protect the movement from party crashers, I said with a gulp. By the way, why all the code names? Oh, it's not easy getting millennials out for a cause, especially if it reeks of crusty old politics. We found if we make it feel a little more cloak and dagger, it 
piques their sense of adventure. I nodded my head. I was impressed. That was some juicy information you dropped just now. I agree, timing is critical. So how do you plan on keeping someone from uh, um, acquiring that information back from you? She laughed. We have safeguards. I'm sure whoever you've stolen it from had safeguards too. Yes, they did, she said proudly. She was bursting to tell me how they outsmarted someone. Let's just say I know better than to keep it on the cloud or share it with anyone else. I nodded, took a mental note, good intel. I shook Viv's hand, told her I'd see her again at the next rally and started toward the door. On the outside, I was calm and casual. On the inside, I was plotting and celebrating the progress I was making on a mission I was sent here to accomplish by Shelley that would ensure my team's success. Chapter 12, QER. Ted Kaczynski stood in front of a mirror, working a comb through his disheveled beard. He was being asked to present a progress report, a quarterly evil review, or QER, to his superior. On Earth, Ted didn't pay much attention to appearances, but down here things were different. There was a cult of personality in hell, as many of his cohorts were actually some of the most charismatic folks on Earth. They were not meek, as the Bible rightly predicted. Ted looked in the mirror, did his best to tame his hair and untangle his beard. He even put on a jacket. When in hell, do as the hellions do. Ted was nervous, not because he feared failure. There was no place to go but up around here. He just took pride in his work. He believed in it. He knew with all of his heart, if he had one, and with every fiber of his being, if he had one of those two, that his vision for the world was optimal. Ironic for a man who wasn't much a part of Earth even when he was among the living. As he sought seclusion in a Montana woods, is now, in death and in hell, still fighting for its direction. It's often said that humans have basic survival needs like food, water, and shelter, but what of things like purpose and community? We cannot survive without the former and cannot thrive without the latter. Ted was now clinging to significance, as he still had the power of influence. And that's why today, Ted cared about the appearance of his beard for the first time ever. Not for vanity, but for relevancy. How is your progress coming along, Ted? Very well. We have fervent supporters in San Francisco. They're a core group that is gaining traction. Ted's superior looks skeptical. How large is the group? They're still small in numbers, but growing fast. These things take time to build momentum. Trump started with a small group, many of whom were paid actors. My group is authentic and passionate. They're about to make some noise. Noise? said the superior, his curiosity piqued. We have a plan, a plan that will blow things wide open. Then what are you waiting for? The election is only one year away. It's coming, Ted assured. The superior stared at him with impatience. Ted continued. Democrats are divided again. They have 23 candidates and no central message. Some want impeachment, some don't. They're all over the map. Global warming, abortion, immigrant rights, Russia, LGBTQ. 
And now they're even talking about stacking the Supreme Court with justices and eliminating the Electoral College, moves we know will alienate many swing counties who feel power slipping from their fingers. It's a thing of beauty for us. The superior nodded. And what threats do you perceive to achieving your plan? The superior was no dummy. He was a Wall Street tycoon in his day. And now he was drilling Ted for a SWOT analysis. SWOT standing for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. The usual, Ted replied. We, of course, need to maintain our daily attacks on facts, truth, unity, compassion, which are really our biggest threats, Ted said. The challenge is that millennials are on track to becoming the most educated generation ever, according to Pew Research. So blatant lies won't fly with them as they did with their parents and grandparents. So how are you combating it? Arrogance, Ted said through his teeth, overconfidence. Now the superior smiled. He knew the trappings of conceit, and San Francisco was brimming with smugness. Yes, he said, Custer, Napoleon, General Lee, they all suffered from victory disease, Ted said, finishing the superior sentence. Democrats think they're invincible. They think lightning couldn't possibly strike twice. It's our job to keep feeding their giant egos, Ted concluded. And the more outrageous lies we can get Republicans to believe, the more superior the Democrats will feel, said Ted's boss. And the gulf widens even further, Ted said. Ted was driven. He filled his existence with the love of knowledge or the love of purpose, the love of achievement, the very things empty people seek when they've never actually experienced human love. Satisfied with Ted's assessment, the superior sent him back to finish the work he'd started, for Ted knew no other way.